0: Man, Well, good morning. Happy, what is this? Labor Day? Yeah, that's what this one is. let does it get Labor Day and Memorial Day? I don't know why. Well, it's good to see you all this morning. My name is Isaiah. I'm one of the pastors here at ECC. Uh, quick story for you. Well, it's not that quick, but about a month ago. It's quick enough. About a month ago, uh, my family and I went on our first week-long family vacation. We have three uh, three young kids. We took a, a week and went on a vacation. And one of the days we went to Gooseberry Falls. Anybody ever been to Gooseberry? I think we've got a photo maybe of uh, of the fam at Gooseberry. If you've never been there, it's along the North Shore, Lake Superior. It's a series of waterfalls. There they are. My gorgeous wife and my three kids. Uh, and I got permission from my wife to share this story, by the way. That's important. Um, So it was an absolutely gorgeous day. You can see that. It was like 80, 85 degrees dry. I mean, phenomenal for Gooseberry. And if you've been there, you know, like the highlight on Gooseberry in hot days is to go and wade in the water and some people are swimming and all that. And you can see with three kids, they thought it was the coolest thing ever to walk on the rocks and in the river and all this stuff. And it's not like a raging river. Like it looks pretty impressive there with the waterfall, but it's pretty much a trickle for most of it, at least at the end of summer. So. So we're going along and, and enjoying this beautiful day, and the kids are just totally into it, especially my youngest one, Sam, there in the orange shirt. He's three years old. This kid, like one of his favorite things is to just run. Like <laughs> He'll just run, run. He And we'll like try and get him to do something. He's like, no, I want to run. And he'll just literally runs all the time. So this was the coolest thing, because he's able to run over the rocks and in the water and So we're walking along and we're going from like falls to falls along. Are are you a fan of running too? You went like this, so I thought maybe you're a fan of the running too. I don't know, (laughs) probably, huh? So so we're going from fall to fall, you know, falls to falls, checking it out. And we got to this point where my wife had the two boys, my oldest son, Micah, who's six, and Sam, the three-year-old, and I had our daughter, Elizabeth. And Elizabeth was putzing around with like a rock in her sandal or something, so we kind of got separated a little bit and they were working their way up, and and I was dealing with Elizabeth with this thing. So I come up, and I come ac- across the aftermath. Here's what happened. They're walking along, and Sam, who's running all the time, got ahead, and he went charging into the water. Well, he went into a spot that was a little bit deeper than he anticipated, a little bit faster than he anticipated, and slipperier. He steps, whoosh, gone, right into the water, it, totally underwater. My wife, you know, panicking, goes to grab him while she's holding hands with my 6-year-old. So she lunges to grab him. He slips. He starts to go. My wife steps exactly where my 3-year-old had just stepped. She goes all three of them in the water. So I come up, I come up just as they're all emerging, right? And I see that everybody's okay, and they're kind of crawling out, soaking wet, and being the kind, sensitive, caring (laughs) husband that I am, my first response was, well, the camera's ruined, (laughs) because my wife had our digital camera in her pocket. Not the right thing to say. Uh, Yeah. So um, so we did, the, the camera somehow miraculously came to life like a week later, so we were able to rescue some of the photos, and it still works, but it's not quite the same camera it was before, but it'll get us by for a while here. But this morning, uh, I wanna, we're going to talk about Sabbath, and one of the things we typically associate the Sabbath with as a concept, if you've been around Christianity for any length of time, is rest. With vacations. We associate Sabbath with vacation. Well, what I want to look at this morning is that while that may be true, that there is something about the Sabbath associated with not working, that there's more to it than that. That Sabbath and vacation are not necessarily the same thing. And we're going to dive into some scripture and look at what it is that it seems God is up to with the Sabbath and why He gave it to us. So let me pray and we'll dive in. Lord. We thank you for this time. Let us be aware of your presence. Let us understand your word and hear from you this morning. We ask that your spirit would speak to us in ways beyond the words that I can say, but speak to our hearts in ways that only your voice can. In your name, amen. Well, I recently heard an interview uh, of an author who was promoting his book. Uh, It was called Rapture Ready. Has anyone come across this book? No one? Phenomenal. All right. So, this author's promoting this book called Rapture Ready. Uh, the book is a bit of a memoir of the year that this author, who happens to be a secular Jew from New York, spent infiltrating American Christian pop subculture. Okay? So, here's, here's the story. A secular Jewish guy from New York spent a year... Exploring and learning about American Christian pop subculture. Okay? So you understand, I'm starting to get a picture of what that might look like if you're familiar at all with American pop Christian subculture. So, he, he went into this, and I'm looking forward to getting my hands on the book. Full disclosure, I haven't read it yet. I've listened to this interview, and I've done some reading on the book, but I haven't been able to get my hands on the, on the book yet. But I came across this. Uh, it's a promotional piece that the author wrote for uh, a website of a magazine. It's called Relevant Magazine. It's the magazine I subscribe to. Uh, and this is what, how he introduces the concept of his book. I've got it on the screens here, and I'll, I'll read it for us. He says this. This is the author, Daniel Radish, talking about his book. He said, Until a few years ago, I knew approximately two things about Christian pop culture Left Behind and Striper. (laughs) Both made me want to bang my head. Uh, I'm a secular Jewish New Yorker who never had any reason to set foot in a Christian bookstore or turn on a Christian TV station. But I have a distant half-sister who's Christian, and one day while visiting my wife's family in Wichita, I ended up tagging along with her to a music festival called ShoutFest. I was fascinated. Who wouldn't be? The bands, the t-shirts, the trendy teen Bibles. It was all so, how can I put this politely, weird... That day was the beginning of a year-long journey into the evangelical subculture, which was an enlightening journey. For one thing, I learned that many Christians are even more skeptical of Christian pop culture than I am. After a while, my perception of weirdness itself began to change. And then he goes on and talks about four of the weirdest Christian subculture discoveries he made. Now, disclaimer. Disclaimer. We have to remember that that the source of this, that this guy is coming from the outside. So this isn't my commentary on the weirdness of these things, okay? So let me get that out of the way. Uh, because I'm sure all of us are associated, well, maybe not all of us, but many of us are associated with these things in some way. So remember, this is an outsider's perspective. So when he talks about weirdness, remember that of, okay, where is he coming from and why would this be weird to him, okay? Enough disclaimer out of the way. His first one, the first weirdness, is testaments. Anybody seen these? <laughs> mints wrapped it. Here's what he says about testaments. It wasn't long after my first visit to a Christian bookstore that I heard the phrase, Jesus junk. <laughs> a lot of Christians, I found out, are pretty put off by how cheesy Christian culture can be. And to make their point, most of them singled out testaments. Breath mints wrapped in scripture verses. This is great. The founder of the Scripture Candy Company told me his sweets let parents, quote, get a Christian mes- message into schools without getting into trouble. <laughs> well, you can get something into schools, but I'm not sure it's an authentic Christian message. So that's his first weird discovery is Testaments. Anybody seen these before? I have. I know what he's talking about here. And I've wondered that same thing. All right. His next one. This one's phenomenal. His, his next weird discovery. Bible Man. <laughs> of course, Bible Man is... This is what he says about Bible Man. Bible Man is, of course, the evangelical superhero known to insiders as the caped Christian. <laughs> or, when copyright lawyers aren't listening, Batman for Jesus. <laughs> his, low, uh, his popular low-budget Christian TV series, Bible man whacks villains with his lightsaber while quoting scripture at them. <laughs> and his commentary, just like Jesus. <laughs> all right, <laughs> so that's Bible man. All right, number three, his, his third weirdest one, uh, what he calls witness wear. Everybody, I, uh, I've got some of these in my closet too. So, full, all right. Settling on the single weirdest example of witness wear wasn't easy. I love his examples. I could have gone with Jesus has skills. There are t shirts that say that. Or I'm like totally saved. Or I might have chosen a high concept t shirt like one cross plus three nails equals four given. And it's all the, letter, all the numbers. Yeah. Um, or I might have chosen a high. Con- uh, or, and then there are the, the ubiquitous shirts that twist corporate logos into messages of faith. Look closely, and you'll see that it's not American Idol. It's amazing grace. Not you who, the beverage, but it was he, you who he died for. See the twist there? Uh, and those are the good ones. It's when these parodies jump the rails that, tro- that trouble really begins. Listen to this one Bloodwiser. His blood's for you. <laughs> really? <laughs> or, or the emulation of Mountain Dew's Do the Do. That's a logo that says, do the Jew. Oh, yeah. All right. So that's, so. remember, this is, this is an outside perspective on this stuff, him coming at it. His last one, this one's phenomenal, especially being I just saw a movie involving this this weekend. Uh, his last amazing revelation or weirdest revelation is that this, Stephen Baldwin is still a celebrity. <laughs> Stephen Baldwin there? What makes you look like, like, what is that thought? Right there? Like, what is that? Is that the I'm going to take over the world one? I don't know which one that is. The eyebrow raise? That's great. Um, It's been more than 10 years. This is what he says about Stephen Baldwin. Uh, 10 years since Stephen Baldwin made his only film of any consequence, The Usual Suspects, and Biodome. Come on. Uh... But at a Christian book fair I attended, the line for an autograph, his a line for his autograph is a good half hour. Baldwin now fronts a skateboard ministry, and his skate sermon video, Living It, has sold more than hundred and fifty thousand copies. So him discovering that Stephen Baldwin was still famous was an amazing discovery. So, alright, so besides that being a lot of fun, just to explore all right, what does Christian subculture look like from the outside, uh, he brings up a good point. The uh, author of explores this idea that Christianity, uh, especially pop Christianity, is a subculture within the United States. Now, real briefly, let's talk sociology. And I say real briefly, we'll do this real quickly, and there won't be notes you need to take, there won't be a test. Um, But sociology, there's something that we can define in America as America mainstream popular culture. American mainstream culture. There's this thing that all of us identify that's the dominant American culture okay we're all familiar with that idea that there's something dom- there's an Amer- a dominant American culture now culture is defined by a bunch of things economics uh, social norms moral convictions religious belief entertainment consumer choices the language that we use uh, among a whole bunch of other things so that's what defines what culture is so then there are a couple other terms about sub, about culture. There is a term called subculture. Now subculture is a current within a mainstream culture that that differentiates itself in some ways. A subculture has different preferences when it comes to music and fashion and entertainment. Their preferences within a subculture are different from the mainstream culture in those areas. But the subcultures' moral convictions, social norms, Uh, economic practices, religious beliefs are generally the same as that of the mainstream culture. So that's what a subculture is. And then there's something within a mainstream culture that's called a counterculture. And now a counterculture may have the same or similar or slightly differing preferences in music and entertainment and fashion and some of those things as the mainstream culture. But the counterculture then differs from the mainstream culture in its Moral convictions, social norms, economic practices, religious beliefs, those things are substantially different or counter to the mainstream culture. So what this author does, I think, for us is as he explores this stuff, is he raises a good question and a good argument that's been going on within Christianity in the United States for a long time, is are we a subculture or are we a counterculture? And what does that mean for how we live? How is it that we engage each other and the larger culture that we live in. Are we a subculture or are we a counterculture? If you've got the green sheets and you want to take notes, that's one of the blanks that you can fill in. Are we a subculture or are we a counterculture? Now, I've probably revealed my cards a little bit. I've probably tipped my hand and even just the discussion of this. But I don't want to go too far down this road because it's a conversation in and of itself to have about subculture versus culture. But... It does raise for us a question of if Jesus is working in us through the Holy Spirit, transforming us, changing us, affecting how we live and the decisions we make about all these things, about our moral convictions, about our economic practices, about our social norms, about our music, about our fashion. What does that mean and what does that look like given the larger culture that we're all immersed in? And that we are, like it or not, a part of. So what does that mean for all of this? Well, let's dive into the scripture and we'll see how this connects to the Sabbath, because I think it does. If you've got your Bible, you can open up way to the left. We're going to Exodus chapter one. Now, Exodus chapter one. Uh, If this is the second book of the Bible, but it is the beginning of the story of the Jewish people or the Israelites. Genesis is the story of the origins, where humanity comes from, how the world begins. And also the story of the patriarchs, the, the father figures, the ancient, ancient ancestors of the Jewish people. And in, the, in Genesis, God is typically dealing with people on individual terms. It's not until Exodus that God begins to deal with people on more of a communal basis and God begins to, to speak to a larger community as a whole. And that's the Israelite people. So God is beginning to to deal with them. So you could say in some ways that Exodus is really the beginning of the story for the Israelites. While there's some preamble stuff in Genesis, Exodus is the beginning of their story. So Exodus chapter 1, we're going to begin with verse 8. It says this, Now a new king to whom Joseph, part of the Genesis story, meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them, the Israelites, to oppress them with forced labor. And they built, built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread... Which brings the point, evidently the Israelites knew what to do with the little spare time they had. So the Egyptians came to dread... (laughs) The parents got that joke. Uh, So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor and brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. So the introduction of the story of God's people, we find them... Oppressed, And they're oppressed by the Egyptians who are oppressing them with what? Their work. Their labor. They're oppressing them with work. This is the beginning of the story of the Israelites. They're a group of people who are in a culture that is not their own, and that mainstream culture is forcing them to work, and that's how they find their identity. As human beings, a slave is only as valuable as the outcome of their work. A slave's value is intimately and directly connected to their work. So for the Israelites, as a people living within a larger culture, their value as people was not connected to their humanness, it was connected to their work. So this is the beginning of the story of the Israelites. This is how it begins. Now, through a series of events that involve Charl- Charlton Heston, Yule Brenner, and Ann Baxter, uh, God frees the Israelites. If you don't know what I'm talking about, just watch television sometime around Easter. Or you'll see the show. All right? So after God frees the Israelites, he informs these former slaves that now they're going to be what God calls a kingdom of priests and a holy nation what he informs them is that what they're going to be is they're going to reveal the nature and character of God to the rest of humanity. That God is going to reveal himself to the entire world through this small band of, well, relatively small band of people. Now, in order for God to, to do this, God, recognize that, God recognizes that there's going to be a pretty ex- expan- ex- expansive transform, uh, expansive, transformational process, easy for me to say, that's going to need to take place because these are former slaves. Their entire lives for generations have been formed, they've been directed by their identity as slaves. So God recognizes that there's going to need to be change to happen. So God begins this process of, of telling them how to live as free people and how to live as his people. And we have a bunch of what we call the Old Testament that spells out how God instructs them to do that. We have more than 600 rules that God gives to them to, to tell them how to live as his people, how to live as free people. Now, I'm sure many of us aren't familiar with all 600 more and plus of them, but many of us are familiar with the first 10, right? The Ten Commandments that come. It's interesting, as God is speaking to these newly freed slaves about becoming his people, God comes to this law, this commandment. Number four among the first ten, God says this to them. He says, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day to the Lord your God. On it you shall do not do any work. On this day you shall not do any work. God's speaking to a group of former slaves whose entire history, collective memory about who they are for generations is intimately connected to what they were able to produce. And God says to them, in order for you to be my people, one day a week you need to not work. You need to not produce. The other six days you need to because We need to produce. In order to live, they needed to produce things. They needed to work their fields. They needed to tend their flocks. They needed to eventually build homes. They needed to do all those things that are necessary to live. But God says, in order for you to become the people I want you to be, for one day a week, your identity can't be tied to what you produce. Now, this is revolutionary for a group of slaves to be told not to work. Former slaves are commanded not to work. The inherent nature of slavery is that your identity is tied to what you do, to what you produce. So what would happen? What would happen to the heart and mind of a former slave if one day a week, instead of working, what the slave did was eat and drink simple good food with their closest friends and dearest family. What would happen in the hearts and minds of these slaves if if they instead of working they took this one day and read and studied the revelation about who God was and then discussed in their communities what it meant to be the people of that God. What would happen in the hearts and minds of these former slaves if one day a week they didn't work, but set aside this day to, set aside this day to discover what it meant to be the humanity that God saw them as, rather than the people that they had been. You can see why this is out of place why this command to Sabbath is revolutionary, because you're talking to slaves about not working. Now, for us, what I contend, based on this scripture, is that vacation is not Sabbath. That Sabbath isn't simply about working. Sabbath isn't simply about the abstinence of labor in our lives for a day. I contend that Sabbath is an intentional, tangible rebellion against the slavery that our culture holds over us. Now, none of us in here are slaves. None of us owns each other. But within our culture, there are so many things that define who we are the same way that slavery defined the Israelites. There are so many things within our culture that give us meaning, that assign value to us. The work that we do assigns value to us. The fashion that we wear. What we read, the media we consume, the cars that we drive, the neighborhoods we live in, the schools we attend, how we decorate our homes, who we follow on Twitter, how many Facebook friends we have. The stuff we buy, all of those things assign value to us, all of those things are some sort of cultural slavery that we 're in the midst of, and we can 't escape those things in the culture we live in. We have to go to work You, you have to have a job in order to survive you don 't necessarily have to be on Facebook, but if you want to have a social life it's and particularly if you 're a teenager or a twenty or something. It's almost a necessity, right? Just because everyone is doing it, and it's just a normative part of life to be involved in that. We live in the suburbs. It is fundamentally impossible to get around without a vehicle. There are parts of life that we just simply cannot escape. We cannot simply undo because they're part of the larger culture that we live in. But what we need to recognize is that those things, like it or not, are helping define who we are. They help us understand who we are. Like it or not, they're sending us messages about our value. What I would contend is that the Sabbath isn't about just not working. The Sabbath is about silencing all those voices. That the Sabbath is about finding ways to turn all of those things off. To ignore all of those things that tell us who we are based on what we do what we consume, and how we live. And in that silence, listening, So that we can more clearly hear the voice of our Redeemer. Now I would contend that because of this, this is why Jesus spoke of the Sabbath differently than so many people at his time did. If you're still in your Bible, you can turn over to Mark chapter 2. If you're not, it'll be on the screens. But when Jesus was confronted about the Sabbath and about observance of the Sabbath, Jesus said something about it that was different than what most of the people in his culture were practicing with it. It says this in Mark chapter 2, verse 23 is where I'm starting. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for the priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, this is what Jesus is saying, the Sabbath was made for people, not people for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for people so that they might silence the larger culture that they're in so that they might hear the voice of God. If you're taking notes, that's the last talk point there, that the Sabbath silences the voice of our culture. One of the books I read uh, to help me prepare, and it's, actually I've read it before, I really enjoy it. It's, it's called The Sabbath, and it's by a, uh, an author named Abraham Joshua Heschel. He's actually been... Dead for a long time, since 1971 or two, he passed away in. Uh, but Abraham Joshua Heschel was born in, uh, I want to say Switzerland in, or Germany, somewhere in Eastern Europe. Uh, and then he grew up there and was exiled to Poland for a while and then fled the Nazis to the United States because he was a Jew. In the United States, he became a professor at the Jewish Theological uh, seminary? Is that what it's called? JTS, yeah. Um, he became a professor there, and he was, he was very active in the civil rights movement. Actually, I've got a picture of him. Uh, this is the March at Selma, and you can see Martin Luther King there in the middle, uh, and there's a few other people of note. But you see the guy over on the right with the giant white beard? That's him. That's Abraham Joshua Heschel. And he wrote this book about the Sabbath, and he released it in 1951. And in the preamble to his book, his daughter writes an introduction to it. And her name is Susanna Heschel, and she's actually a pretty substantial Jewish scholar of her own right. But she says this, and I think this is worth noting, about the Jewish community in the United States at the time when the book was released in 1951. Uh, She says this, It was as if they, Americanizing Jews, desired a religionless Judaism a Judaism without god faith or belief for them the sabbath interfered with jobs socializing shopping and simply being american when i read this i couldn't help but contextualizing that into us into the american church and and to be frank i couldn't help but contextualize it onto myself Because it is so hard to silence all of those voices. It is so hard to turn everything off. It is so hard to take even one day and live in silence. Because silence is extraordinarily uncomfortable. But, there's a chance that if we turn everything off, if we silence all those voices telling us who we are and what value we have, there is a chance that in that silence we might hear God. (coughs) The earliest Christians shortly after Jesus had rose again, they took the Sabbath, which had been historically and always Saturday, and they took their celebration of the Sabbath and they moved it to Sunday because they associated this new celebration with the resurrection. They saw that, the, that, that this communal movement of coming together and understanding who we are by God's definition, rather than the culture around us, should happen on the day that Jesus rose from the grave. So they moved this entire Sabbath to Sunday because they wanted to celebrate the resurrection as a part of this Sabbath practice. And those first Christians, from the very beginning, began to incorporate a practice on the Sabbath that still passes on to us today. Communion the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, whatever tradition you might have grown up in, we call it these things. Well, this morning we're going to do this together. Because they recognized that part of what communion did, part of taking the body and the blood, reminded them of who they were. Communion silences those other voices. Communion for us reminds us that weakness is greater than all the strength of the world. Communion reminds us that the, the circumstances in our life that we find overwhelming are overtaken by the hope of the kingdom. Communion reminds us that no matter how many ways we're told we're something other than who we are in God is silenced by the voice of Jesus. Communion reminds us of all those things. We're going to participate in that this morning.